in a couple of weeks, we're going to have Halloween, and uh, that's what the world celebrates, but we celebrate something a little bit different here at Emmanuel Baptist Church, and on that day, down in the Christian Life Center, that's the big building here south of us, we're going to have probably 12, 14, 1,500 people that will be gathered down there on that evening, and many of you are going to be involved in playing games and handing out candy and those kinds of things. It's a great opportunity for us to minister to our community. If you have not signed up yet for a booth, we need you to sign up. There will be hundreds of kids who will come from all over the area who will be a part of that. And we need you to come and smile and be kind and considerate and gracious and all those wonderful attributes. Can you do that? <laughs> sure you can. And uh, you get to hand out candy. When you hand out candy, you make kids smile, so that's a great thing. And so we're going to do that on uh, that October the 31st. We are in desperate need of more candy. Believe it or not, there are many sales throughout the Metroplex for a dollar for a big bag of candy. And so we're going to give you an opportunity to contribute to that. So if you'd like to do that, bring it and put it in my office, and I will guard it very safely for you, okay? Uh, You want me to tell you what kind I like? No. Okay, I won't. Uh, Today's an interesting time. We're going to begin now in Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to take a look at what Jesus has to say about authenticity, about being authentic in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that he goes into Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 1, to talk about authenticity because what follows in Matthew 6, 1 are some interesting insights on how we are to practically now live out the faith that God is calling us to live through faith in Christ. Jesus, in this Sermon of the Mount, has addressed the matter of the heart, and now that the heart has been transformed, it's been renewed, now there's a byproduct that then results in the life of the believer, and these are the practices that sort of overflow and come out from within us that then we practice in an everyday, very practical way of how to live out now the Christian life that Jesus is calling forth in his disciples. This is a message for disciples of Christ, for those of us who are Christ followers. And he's calling us to authenticity. One of the greatest and the most, should I say, critiques of the church that I have heard for decades is the subject of hypocrisy. Who of us have not heard about the hypocrisy of not just Christianity, not just the church, but also Christians? How would you define hypocrisy? Well, if you go to the dictionary, hypocrisy is defined as someone who pretends to be more virtuous and religious than he or she really is. I know you've never done that, right? You have pretended to be more religious and you've pretended to be more virtuous than you really are. You've never done that, right? How many of you have done that? Every hand should go up. Look around if those hands aren't up and go, you hypocrite, raise your hand. That is human nature because when the standard is raised so high, There are only two reactions that we're going to give to that standard. Jesus, in Matthew 5, 48, has already said to us that we are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Now, we all know that the only one perfect in here is me. So therefore, you have all failed in that 
demand or command from Jesus to be perfect. So there are two responses and two reactions you're going to give. Either you are going to just flat out say, you know what, it's impossible, and you're going to give up, throw in the towel, and walk away, or you're going to pretend that you have met the righteous demands or commands of being perfect, and you're going to put on this facade, you're going to wear the mask, you're going to play the game, you're going to act out the part that you are this morning, you have lived for Jesus 100% Monday through Saturday, you haven't sinned, you haven't failed, you haven't fallen short of that perfect standard, and you have come neatly dressed, hair in place, hopefully your deodorant on, your teeth are brushed, your big Bible's in your hand, and you are looking as pious as you can possibly look in order to hope to disguise yourself as the humble sinner that you really are in need of a Savior. For we as Christians are more guilty, I think, of putting on an air, a pretense, or a piousness of perfection than any other group. Now, believe it or not, there are some who don't care at all about that. There are some Christians, you know, when you raise the standard, they say, you know what, I can't live up to it, so I'm just going to enjoy sin. There are some who do that. But many of us, I think, if not most of us, have the problem of wanting to be accepted, to be applauded, and to be approved by others. And so because of that, we can be guilty of hypocrisy. I, I ran across this interesting little illustration, kind of a, a, a dumb joke, but you know, somebody gave me a joke book last week trying to help me out with some of these, but <clears throat> I appreciate that, but it didn't help because those jokes were worse than mine, so... If you're going to give me a joke book, do it the ones that are better than the ones I'm using. But anyway, of course, that's a judgment, isn't it? But here we go. He's, this guy came up. He is, he's a wandering church member, and he meets his pastor sort of in a, in a place that he didn't think, maybe the grocery store or somewhat like that, that he didn't think he would meet his pastor. And their paths cross, and he said to his pastor, he said, you know, I never go to church. Perhaps you have noticed that I am never in church. Right, pastor? And the pastor said, yes, I have noticed that, he says to his wayward church member. Well, the reason I don't go is because there are so many hypocrites in our church. And uh, the pastor didn't really know what to say for a second until he caught his, his himself. And he said, oh, well, don't let me keep you away, sir. He said with a smile, there's always room for one more hypocrite. You know, those who have this charge against us and against the church, the church is filled with hypocrites, I say to them and I say to you and I say to us, there's always room for one more. Because the reality is that none of us in here practice our Christianity perfectly. There's no one in here perfect, including me. I am not perfect. Can I get amen to that? Thank you. And because of that, we have a tendency then to want to meet the approval and to gain the applause of people. We do. It's human nature to want to be accepted by people. And because we have that tendency to want to be applauded and accepted by people, we have a tendency then to, to portray ourselves in a better light than we really are. And if we were to ask to measure our 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 authenticity today between a one to ten, most of us would put ourselves around an eight or maybe a nine. 
Some of you might have a six because we also have a tendency to look in the mirror and we want to evaluate ourselves based upon a standard that we believe we can attain. That was what was going on in Jesus' day. There was a level in the faith, in the Jewish culture, in the religious world of his day, of people who were raising a standard so high, they knew they couldn't meet it, and because they couldn't meet it, then they put on an air, they put on an act, they pretended then to display something that they were really not. And Jesus came on the scene and burst their bubble and helped them realize you are not what you are projecting. You are not what you are proclaiming. As a matter of fact, you're not even what you're preaching to others they must become. And it made them furious. And when somebody points out a hypocrisy, we get a little bit upset with that, don't we? But Jesus is on the scene, and he's sinking disciples who are going to be authentic in their faith. Don't put on an air of pretense. Don't project perfection, because we know that you're not. You know that you're not, so don't, don't try to fool anyone. Don't seek the applause of man. Seek, rather, the applause of God. And when God applauses you, when God accepts you, when God looks down on you and says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. It is then that you have arrived at the place where you need to be. We all deal with peer pressure differently. If you're a student, if you're a young adult, if you're a senior adult, there are standards of those that we live with, and we seek to rise above those standards and, and project those standards, and if we don't, we put on an air of hypocrisy. And so we pretend that we're perfect when the reality is that we're not. So Jesus is addressing in this text, in chapter 6, this struggle that we have for an authentic faith. Let's take a look at this passage, and let's see what Jesus has to say about authenticity. As we take a look at the text, I want us to look at Matthew 6, verse 1. Matthew 6, 1 lays, I think, the foundation for the rest of the chapter. It's a, it's, a, it's a subject, it's a topic that he's going to address several times over. And because of that, I want to single this out, and I want us to look at, at Matthew 6.1, and I want us to look at the exhortation that Jesus gives toward personal authenticity. He's demanding of those disciples to be perfect as, his heavenly, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. He's raising the bar. And he knows that our human tendency, our human nature, because he's raised the bar so high to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, we're either going to seek to do that and get discouraged and stop, or we're going to pretend that we've arrived when the reality we've not. And so he wants to address that right off the bat in Matthew 6, 1. And he says in the text, notice what he says, beware. Whenever Jesus says beware, we must take note of what is about to follow. This word beware means consider what I'm about to say. I want you to pay close attention to what I am about to tell you. Beware. There's a warning here. And the warning is that against hypocrisy. And he's warning his disciples then, and he's warning us today, beware of playing hypocrisy. Beware of projecting something that you're not. Notice what he says. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Notice the practice. The warning is about a practice. And I want to take the positive aspect about this practice first. I believe 
that it's important that we practice righteousness. Jesus has already said in Matthew 5.48, and we've already indicated, and we did two Sundays ago, that he's calling us to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. Jesus set for us a perfect example, and as his disciples, as his followers, he's calling them as he's calling us who want to follow him to exhibit righteousness. That means to practice righteousness, to live a godly life. That means to make choices that reflect our faith. It's important that we do that, that we project, that we, that we, that we, that we practice this, this life of righteousness. Did he not say earlier, a couple of Sundays ago, where we studied in Matthew 5, he said that we were to be salt in a saltless world, that we were to be light in a darkened world? That's an aspect of practicing what we already have inside the outward overflow of what has happened through a transformed life, we then practice outwardly what has taken place inwardly. The Pharisees were practicing outwardly without an inward transformation. And Jesus goes first to the heart, and he says, once the heart's been transformed, now through that transforming work of the Spirit of God in us, through the newness of life, we then are then to practice that which is righteousness, to be holy as he is holy, to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. You might say, well, I can't overcome temptation, but yet he says that we can submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. He says when we are tempted, he will give us a way of escape. We as believers can, and the power of of God through Christ can rise above the world that we live in and we can be salt and we can be light and we can make choices and we can yield to the Spirit's leadership and we can live righteous lives in an unrighteous world. We can do that. Now, you'll never be able to do that perfectly, but you can reflect a righteous life. And he's, he's saying to his disciples, I want you to practice righteousness from a transformed heart. But here's the caution. Notice the purpose for the practice. He said, beware of practicing your righteousness. How? Be careful that you practice your righteousness before other people. What's the purpose? In order to be seen by them. Why are they projecting this righteousness? To be seen by others. Why do they care what others see? Because they want others to to applaud me. They want, they want others to think that they are righteous. They want others to think that they are perfect. They want others to think that they don't struggle Monday through Saturday with the mundane things that weaker, lesser disciples struggle with. Do you know anybody like that? Have you been guilty sometimes of taking that position in life group or when talking with someone who's slipped up and tripped up because of weakness or a temptation to sin. It's, it, it, it's really important, he says, that we not elevate ourselves to this position of trying to seek the applause or the approval of man more than God. These people are living righteously not to seek the applause and approval of God, but the applause and the approval of man. And he says, practice righteousness. But let me give you a warning. 
Because the tendency and the temptation that we have, the longer we're in the faith and the more we seek righteousness, the more we practice righteousness, is to elevate ourselves and to put on an air of perfection, of righteousness, that's not really true. Because we do that because we want others to think highly of us. I mean, how many of us in life group this morning actually talked about a struggle, a weakness, or a sin that we had this last week and asked for prayer, support, and help? I'm not asking for a witness, (laughs) but thank you for that anyway. Most of us don't come into a a setting to do that because we we want to masquerade. We want to act. We don't want to pretend that we've not had any wrongful thoughts or any wrongful feelings or done any wrongful things. And so we come to church in our really pretty things and our smiling faces and our big holy bibles and we we act like we've we've been perfect all week long and we're filled with knowledge and wisdom and perfection and we answer all the questions and we you know what i'm saying that's a facade when a life group should be a support group and all of them should be and too too many times they're anything but that aren't they but he says if we project this righteousness for the applause and the approval of men, notice what happens. Notice the promise in the text. For then you will have some rewards. For then you will have few rewards. What does he say? For then you will have no rewards. Zero, nothing, nada, zilch from God. When you, get the, when, when you live righteously or you project this perfection in order to get the applause and the appeal and the approval of man rather than God, and they, they applaud you, that's all you got. There's nothing else. God looks down on that and he goes, you did it for the wrong reasons. And that's the only reward you're going to get. That's it. Nothing more. You think that's not a pattern? He's concerned about that in the life of his disciples. He, must, he is so concerned about that that we're, going about to, we're about to read here in the next couple of verses, in the next two or three verses, that he says, don't be a hypocrite in how you give. Because there were some that were giving in order for the applause and the approval of man. He says then in Matthew 6, 5, be careful how you pray. Because there were some that were praying so that others would say, what a great prayer warrior. Man, he's so deep in his faith. I wish I could pray like that. I had my first pastorate in uh, Aslett, Texas, a very small church when I was in seminary. And... uh, had a guy named David Day. I don't even know if the guy's still alive, but we had a practice like we have here where the deacons would come up and say the offertory prayer. And he was nominated for deacon, and he was a wonderful man, but he continued to reject and refuse this, this, this recognition, this position in the church. And I finally went to him. I said, David, you're a great guy. I don't understand why you wouldn't. And he said, Pastor, he said, I don't know how to pray in public. That's the only reason. And I said, David, you're not praying to people and for their approval. You're praying to God. It's not how you pray. It's to who you pray to. 
And too many times we're more impressed by praying so that we impress others with our spiritual depth and our walk than we are about praying to God. And there were some in Jesus' day that were standing out and they prayed these flowerly prayers, but they weren't praying to God. They were praying so that people would be impressed by their prayer life. Did you know that in Matthew 6, 16, there were even people who were fasting. Imagine that, doing without food. I know none of us in here would ever want to do that, especially me. And they were walking around looking, it says, gloomy, so that others would think, how religious you are. I wish I were like you. I wish I had the depth and the dedication and the commitment that you have. Oh, you are, you are just, oh, man, you are above me. And people walking around going, yeah, don't you wish you were like me? You know, I, I thought about something this week while I was thinking about where to find an illustration for this. And there's a passage in John 6, beginning with verse 1, where there's, there's this need that's going on. And it's a need about, about food. Jesus is ministering to this large crowd of 8, 9, 15,000. Not sure how many. And there's no QT around. There's no Dillon's. And it's time for lunch. And they don't have any way to supply the need. You know the story well. But I never saw it in this light. And they began to look for food among the crowd, maybe. I'm not really sure. The Bible doesn't really tell us why Andrew discovered what he did. But they didn't have what was necessary to feed the 5,000 men plus thousands of women and children. And Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, comes to Jesus and he says, you're not going to believe this, but all I have found is this little boy over here. He's got five loaves and two fish. He's got a sack lunch. That's all I found. But, but it's not enough. And Jesus, I think, did this to test the disciples. And Jesus said, bring the food to me. And the boy gave his sack lunch to Jesus. And Jesus, after praying over it, fed thousands of people. How many people, I, I was looking at the text, how many people do you think knew that this lunch came from that little boy? What does the scripture say? Well, we know Andrew knew, and we knew that Jesus knew, but we don't know if this is a private conversation between Andrew and Jesus, or maybe there was a little huddle, you know, where, where Jesus and the disciples are huddled together, him and the 12, and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with food. But more than likely, not more than 12 of the disciples knew that, that Andrew had discovered this little boy, and this little boy was willing to give. Why did he give his food? He didn't do it for recognition. Jesus didn't get up and say, hey, folks, we have this food here given by this young man today. Yay! Did he do that in the text? The little boy is completely ignored by the masses. So it helps me realize, as I looked at that text, sort of saw it for the first time, I've got a little boy here who gave his sack lunch, not expecting any kind of recognition from anyone, and I would say that's pretty good motive for practicing righteousness. Because he's going to talk about giving here. And he's going to talk about when we give, we should not give for the applause, the approval, or the acceptance of man for their accolades. But we should give simply for the glory of God. Look at the text in verse 2. Let's talk about the example about giving. Now, I know giving makes many people uncomfortable. But I don't have time. I have a 
funny little story about that, but I'm not going to go there because we don't have time. But let's take a look at the text. Notice in verse 2, right off the bat, notice the expectation of giving. Jesus says to his disciples, thus, notice this, when you give. Skip down to verse 3. He says, when you give. He doesn't say, if you give. He says, when you give. Jesus is expecting his disciples to have the characteristic of giving. Giving is the nature of the Father. It's the nature of the Son, and it should be the nature and the characteristic of the disciples of Christ. For John 3, 16, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave. Galatians 2.20, at the end of that very popular verse that most of us have memorized, it says that Jesus gave himself for us. God the Father gave his one and only Son. Christ gave himself as our sacrificial atonement on the cross where he took upon himself our sins against God, not his own, died in our place to then be raised from the dead so that through that gift we might have new life. Jesus gave, and he says to his disciples, I'm not wishing you give. I'm not hoping you give. I'm expecting that my disciples give. For when you give, notice the inspiration of the gift, when you give to the needy. In the original text, this give to the needy is one word. And this word means charity. And it indicates that we are to give to the needs of others. And he's saying, when you give, you are to be inspired by the needs of others. That means I have to be aware that there is a need. I have to have my eyes open and in tune and sensitive to the leadership of the Spirit of God and give when it's appropriate, not give because it's entitled to them. There is no entitlement here. It is giving because I am led of the Spirit of the Lord because of the character of the Lord. As a disciple of the Lord, I'm giving to the need. Remember the lady who came, the example of prayer, and she beat on the door and said, I have guests, and nothing to feed them. And the guy finally got tired of her, it's about persistence in prayer, got tired of her begging, came and said, what do you want? She told him, and the Bible said he gave her what she had need of. There are needs that we must be inspired and motivated by in order to meet those needs. That's the inspiration. He says, and when you give, give to the need. In verse 3, he says, give to the need. But notice the third part of verse 3. Notice the execution in the giving. Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in their streets. Notice the corruption in the execution of giving. There's a corrupt aspect about giving, and giving is, is, is sometimes is something that many people don't like to do, but when we do, we want to toot our own horns. We want something for ourselves when we give. Many give expecting to receive. I was, uh, I was thinking about my message this week and, and uh, watching uh, one of the many games, and, and on one of these games came the, the commercial about the Wounded Warrior Project. And they're encouraging people to give. And if you give to the Wounded Warrior Project, which is a very worthy cause, what do you get in exchange for that? Anybody tell me? A blanket. Why would you get a blanket? So you can 
lay it somewhere. Why would you lay it somewhere? Because when people see that, what are they going to know? You gave. Absolutely. And don't you think people put that in a prominent place so that others will know that you support the veterans and you gave? Absolutely. Why? That, that's human nature. I remember a church that I pastored one time that had names of the people who donated the pews on every pew. Why did they do that? They wanted everybody to know they gave it. From now on to all eternity. There's a church in Charleston, in, uh, in Charleston South Carolina, the oldest Southern Baptist church in, in the U.S., there are more stinking plaques throughout the walls of that church still there today of people who gave all kinds of garbage that, that's still up there and it's hundreds of, their names will never be forgotten. Why do they give? So their names could be up there for all eternity. You know what? That's all they got. That's all they got. He says here, don't toot your own horn. Don't give and say, look what I gave. Then notice verse 3. Somebody answer that phone. Notice the correction that he gives in the instruction. In verse 3, he says, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. What is he saying here? He's saying, be inconspicuous when you give. Be inconspicuous. Don't attract attention to yourself when you give. When you put your... Your, your money in the envelope and you give it in a life group or you put it in the worship service, don't make it bold print and turn it upside down so everybody can see it when it's passed down. Don't toot your own horn. Don't give for recognition. Give inconspicuously. I don't think it means that you're to give in such a way that nobody knows it because we are to, to reveal a righteousness. But the idea and the concept we're going to look at in a minute is about motivation. Notice he says, but when you give in verse 4, so that your giving is what? And what? That it be given in secret. To be given in, invisibly. You're an invisible entity. Nobody knows what you gave. Nobody knows that you gave. Nobody knows the amount that you gave. You give invisibly. You give with the right execution because, you see, execution is everything, and execution is determined by the next thing we're going to see is the motivating factor for giving. What's the motive? What's the motivation? Notice it says in verse 2 that they may be praised by others. Why are they giving? Again, so that they can be praised by others. Wow. And people are motivated by that. They want recognition. They want titles. They want applause. They want plaques. They want their name on the door. They want their name on the building. Why do they do that? It's human nature. And he says here, when you give, how do you give? In secret. Putting a big plaque on, on, the, on the wing that, that your donation, is that in secret? And then notice the motivation has to be right. What's the motive for why we serve? What's the motive for why we give? 
What's the motive behind what we do for the kingdom? Why are we living righteously? To be applauded and accepted and approved by man or by God? And notice the recognition in our giving. Last part of verse 4, and we'll close. Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Your Father, that's, that's a personal relationship. Your Father, those who through faith in me have an intimate love relationship with the Father, he who sees in secret will reward you. He talks about the omniscience, the omniscience of God. Big word, what does it mean? It means God is all-knowing. There's nothing that you can do, there's nothing you can give, there's nothing that you can live, there's nothing you can think or say in the name of Jesus for his glory that he doesn't see. The reason people toot their own horns is because sometimes we do things and we're afraid that people won't see them. But God has the all-seeing eye and he sees everything. It's a little bit, that bothers me a little bit, doesn't it bother you a little bit that he knows everything? <laughs> that means I can't hide from him. I and we talked about this yesterday in our staff meeting, in our staff planning session, that sometimes I question my own motives because if I don't, uh, I'm afraid that, that I may, may, may not be honest about why I want certain things to happen and why I do certain things and to make sure that I do things for the right motives because our human tendency and our nature is so subtle and it's so sly and it's so dishonest, isn't it? that we can build ourselves up spiritually and yet not live humbly and honestly in our own depravity and recognize that I'm doing really this for the wrong reasons. Not only is he omniscient, but he's also omnipresent. Notice he sees in secret. That means he sees because he's present. He's always among us and he's always with us and he always sees and notice his omnipotence meaning that he is all powerful he is able then he has the authority he has the power to reward us to reward us not with earthly applause and acceptance and approval and stuff but with eternal everlasting divine rewards that we take with us in heaven. And we need to build an eternal portfolio greater than we build an earthly portfolio because the reality is we're going to spend a lot more time there than we do here. And, and the last I checked, there's, there's no such thing as a U-Haul following a hearse when someone's dead. We leave our stuff here for others. We don't take it with us unless we do it for heavenly rewards by our heavenly Father. In Acts chapter 5, there's an interesting story about a couple that was a part of the New Testament church. And uh, the church was experiencing phenomenal growth in Acts 1 through 4. Uh, let me invite you to my Acts study tonight. It's a commercial, and you can come. We're on chapter 20-something, so come and join us. But in Acts 1 through 4, we learned that there was such a, a movement in Jerusalem in the church that thousands accepted Christ. And when they did, they lost family, they lost friends, they lost possessions, they lost jobs because of their commitment to Christ. And 
needs arose in the church. The Bible says in the last part of Acts 4 that people started, people who had means, started selling things they had and they would bring it and they would lay it at the altar during the worship time so that the needs of the congregation could be met. And the Bible says something really cool. It says no one's needs went unmet. No one in the church. That's why I don't think it's the government's job to supply the needs of the church. But anyway, it's a little psych commercial. In Acts chapter 5, what happens, there's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. You know them well. They have a piece of land, and they sell the land, and they decide among themselves they conspire to keep half of it and to present half to the church as the whole. Why would they do that? <laughs> Yay, Ananias and Sapphira, praise God, you're awesome, Right? Ananias gets tired of waiting for Sapphira. Her makeup's not working very well that day. I don't know. He comes down the aisle. He gets there before she does, lays it at the apostles' feet. And Simon Peter says, dude, why did you conspire in your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? When the land was yours, you could have kept it. But you decided to give half and present it as a whole. You have not lied to man. You have lied to God. The dude drops dead. The ushers come. Boy, can you imagine a worship service like that? Pick a guy up, take him out in the back. They have a, uh, one of those county seat churches, First Baptist County seat. They've got a, a graveyard in the back. <laughs> Praise God, I've never pastored a church that has a graveyard on it. So, and they took him out there, dug a hole, buried the dude. They didn't have a service. They didn't even call the wife. <laughs> Here she comes, boobobbing in in her pretty new outfit that she probably brought with that extra money and her hat and all her makeup, and she's coming down. And Simon Peter says, hey, Sapphira, did your husband present the gift as a whole? Absolutely, that was the amount. And he says almost the same thing he says to her husband. And in the end, why have you conspired to lie to the Holy Spirit? And she drops dead. Why would two people put their lives on the, stake, on the line for that? Because why? They preferred the applause of man more than the approval of God. Hypocrisy is a dangerous game to play. What mask are you wearing today? What game do you play on a regular basis? What kind of actor are you? I'm going to close with this. You know that you might be a redneck if. You ever heard one of those? I'm going to close with You might be a hypocrite if. You might be a hypocrite if you pick up your Bible and bring it to life group and worship service on Sunday morning while leaving it on the coffee table the rest of the week. You might be a hypocrite, but the only time you pray is when you're in a worship service when you don't pray at all during the week. You might be a hypocrite if you expect God to forgive you, but refuse to forgive others. You might be a hypocrite if you're 
disgusted by the moral filth that is playing on your DVR, VCR, DVD, or flat screen television. You may be a hypocrite if you blog about being poor on Facebook via your smartphone. You might be a hypocrite if you have a Save the Planet bumper sticker on your monster truck, Andy Titus. You might be a hypocrite if you complain about Obama's policies and administration, but you've signed up for the Obama health care. You might be a hypocrite if you drop the F-bomb on Facebook and then turn around on your next status and talk about praying to God. You might be a hypocrite if you do to others only applies to others. You might be a hypocrite if you go to church on Sunday and thank God for his grace and then at lunch be unkind and rude to your waiter and waitress. You might be a hypocrite if you sing along with the songs on Christian radio while speeding through traffic and yelling at motorists who are in your way. You might be a hypocrite if you call out the sins and failures of others while making excuses and ignoring the sin in your own life. Are you guilty of hypocrisy? Christ is calling his disciples to authenticity. To be holy as he is holy. To be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. The standard's been raised. Chapter 6, he's trying to help us see how we can practically live that in our everyday life. How do you give authentically? You guard against hypocrisy. Guard against hypocrisy. Invest, invest with integrity. Value the privilege of giving. Giving is a privilege that God has blessed you because every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. And everything that you have and everything that you will ever have has been entrusted and endowed by you as a living trust from God to be used as he directs and as he desires to meet the needs that he leads you to. We're simply stewards of what belongs to him. And as stewards, when we give to him, we elevate and eliminate now this this short-term equity thing. We are doing it to him for his glory, for his honor, and the end result are eternal rewards that never fade, that never disappear, and ones we take with us for eternity. How's your giving? For a disciple, it's not if you give, it's when you give. It's not an option. So when we give, how do we give? How do you give? Let's pray.
We have two sisters this morning, London and Sydney. And if you're in their family and you're here to support them or you're from their class and life group or you've had an impact in their life, would you please stand and show them that you're here supporting them? London, have you asked Jesus to come into your heart to be your savior and your boss? All right. It's because of that that I get to baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. Ask Jesus to come into your heart to be your savior and boss? Yes. Okay, it's because of that that I get to baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. 